0: Okay, we are in the midst of a five-week mini-series in the book of Revelation titled Salvation and Judgment. So one of the distinctive parts of these chapters is the judgment and the wrath of God against sin and evil. It is clear from the vivid and graphic pictures given to us in Revelation that God is going to eventually pour out His wrath upon evil. And when this happens, it's going to result in a very decisive defeat. Now, corresponding to God's wrath being poured out is the reality that this culminates in the salvation of those who are trusting in Jesus. So there's a tension-filled dynamic here for Christians. They are enemies of God that we live with today, that we interact with, that we are friends with. They are not our enemies, but they are enemies of God, But they are also people in need of grace. And so our hope today should be that they would trust in Jesus, that they would not be enemies of God any longer. And we, as their friends, as their family, maybe even as their enemies, have an active role to play in this. But our ultimate hope is that Jesus will return and that he will destroy everything that is opposed to him. So today, we view non-Christians with tears in our eyes, longing for them to no longer be enemies of God. But eventually, Jesus will wipe away all tears and evil. And we will be able to rejoice in that act. Let me pray for us as we get going this morning. God, thank you for the chance to open up your word, I pray, That it would poke us, challenge us, encourage us, and change us in these moments together. In your name I pray. Amen. Alright, the way we're going to do this this morning is I've broken down Revelation 18 into four different chunks. So I'm going to read a chunk, and we're going to talk about it, and we'll read another chunk, and then we'll work through that. So we're going to begin with uh, the first three verses. So let me read these verses. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Okay, so Revelation 18 begins with John saying, I saw, which is a phrase we hear John uttering repeatedly throughout the book of Revelations. There are many things that that John saw in his visions many things that he heard as these visions were coming to him now sometimes he enters into these visions and he's participating in what is transpiring in the visions other times he's observing what's going on and he's doing his best to tell us what is happening but these visions all of them are God's way of showing himself to us He wants to be able to cut through the fog of this world so that we might truly see his glory. We might truly see his goodness. We might be confronted with his grace. And here in Revelation 18, what John sees is another angel. And this angel has great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. So this angel has a very distinctive look to him, which we are going to revisit this in a bit as a contrast to the rest of this chapter. But this angel is thundering a message to the readers of Revelation 18. Now, verses 1 through 3 provide us a bit of a commentary on Babylon. Okay, so we got to talk about Babylon. But before we get into the, what this is saying about Babylon, let's first establish who Babylon is. And how we encounter Babylon today in our everyday. So, going back to last week, we talked about the great prostitute. So, when we read about Babylon, we should think of Babylon as the same thing as the great prostitute. Okay, this is very common that these two are synonymous. With one another. They are depicting the same thing. This is thought widespread, okay? So this isn't just Kevin saying this. This is most anyone who's going to read Revelation, they're going to say this is talking about the same thing. One of the best descriptions I've read about uh, Babylon and the prostitute is this it is the embodiment of a seductive, alluring culture that deceives, entices, and seduces people into idolatry and away from Jesus. She promises security, wealth, comfort, and pleasure, but breeds death. She is a church counterfeit and a picture of the people of the devil. So when we read this, and we think about this in our own context today, it should not be hard for us to see that you and I swim in a sea named Babylon. That is our reality. Wealth, comfort, and the like is everything in our nation, in our country. It is everything to our culture. So Babylon and the prostitute are a depiction of Satan. They are a depiction of the beast that we talked about years ago or weeks ago, the beast's empire. Okay, Now we read here that this great kingdom of Babylon is fallen. So the great one, the mighty one, has been brought low. Goliath has tumbled. The invincible has been exposed. It has been made weak. It is now helpless. So as people were going about their lives, and they were celebrating and indulging in things, that were ultimately unclean, as they drunk deep of immoral things, as people have enjoyed luxurious living, and and even for us today, now, people living in this way, we are thinking, they are thinking, they are inhabitants of something great, something profound, something ideal, but the reality is, this place, Babylon, and these things are part of something that is haunting. And that's what we read here in verse 2. Now, not haunting in the way that many people approach Halloween, right? Like it's this playful candy fest. Okay? Kids go out, they get the hall, go crazy that night or however mom and dad kind of allow them to do. We let our kids go bonkers the first night. And, uh, and then usually it's like, oh, that doesn't sound so good after I made myself sick with all that Candy. That's not the haunting I'm, I'm talking about. Haunting in the sense of pervading, pervasive darkness. It says here in Revelation 18 this is where Babylon is where demons dwell. Okay, so very evil, explicitly evil. Yet haunting also in a way that no, nobody notices. Because nobody really looks, especially in our culture, nobody looks at luxurious living and thinks, run away from that. That's going to kill you. Right? Like, we have been taught throughout our lives, and many of us still do this, probably all of us do this, we are running towards affluence. We are running towards the good things in life. Now, this made me think of A TV show that I watched when I was growing up. So I'm going to date myself here a little bit. Some of you have probably never even heard this show. Uh, But this was a show back in when I was a child that was... My my sister loved to watch Saturday morning cartoons. I I hated it. But I would watch this show. I would get into this gig for sure. So the whole premise of the show was there's this individual with this real royal sounding voice. And he'd go to these celebrities and, and so forth and, and walk you around the house and just give you a picture of all these lavish things that were available to the rich. Things that you should aspire after. And, and you could look at my life, like I grew up in a town of 306 people, like podunk, hick, and I'm watching the show, right? But I, as I got into my 20s, I began to see like, oh, this actually made an impact on me. Like, I was, I was pursuing things. I was a single guy and I had two cars. Why? Why do you need two cars as a single guy? Right? Like, I didn't need that, but I was doing it. And so I just noticed how this reality had kind of sunk its claws into me. And so what we're reading here about Babylon, what's happening in these first few verses, we're getting the chance to look behind the curtain of what we think we want. There are many things that we think we want. Those who want to win the lottery get to see that winning the lottery actually destroys lives. And, and data will support this, right? But we, we, like for those who want to win the lottery, we're going to ignore the data. Those who want to be admired for a skill Or a talent, understand that they have to sell themselves out to be really good at this. Or they have to manipulate and coerce and trick others so that others will look at them in the way that they want. What's happening here in Revelation 18 is people are now seen as things really are. Throughout history, Satan, the CEO of Babylon, has said, Whoever would work hard, will be successful. Whoever is more clever will gain the upper hand in life. Whoever is beautiful will be regarded. Whoever wants it can just take it. Whoever makes themselves into something will save themselves, in a sense. So do it, be it, dream it, claim it. You can have it. In many ways, this sounds like the self-help section of Barnes & Noble, right? Elf has something to say about this, that when we pursue this, we're actually sitting on a throne of lies, that it will not give us what we are actually looking for. And in fact, if we understand the Bible, if we know the Bible, it's the exact opposite of what Jesus said. Jesus said, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This initial picture here of Babylon is communicating to us this reality that life is not found where we oftentimes look for it. There are many things that we chase throughout our lives, throughout our days that will ultimately disappoint us. And even worse, They will destroy us. Okay, let's move to the next section now, verses 4 through 8. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Okay, so there's a number of things that are going on here in these verses, but there is a clear call to the church. So verses 6 and 7 is indicative of how the patience of God will have an end. Okay, the, the angel is calling for the destruction of everything that opposes God. Now, we can read this, and this can seem a bit harsh to our modern sensibilities. But it's good for us then to just stop and remind ourselves about the proud, blatant rebellion of Babylon and of the great prostitute, the woman that we talked about last week. It says here, she has proclaimed, I sit as a queen. And if we understand the rest of Revelation, what she's actually saying is, I sit as the queen. Okay? And mourning shall I never see. So this is the delusion that Satan seeks to convince us of throughout our everyday lives. In our strength, we are convinced that we can scale any mountain, that we can conquer any hardship, that money and comfort, if we get enough of it, it will insulate us from the harsh realities of this life. And so that's why many of us then will try and Pad the 401k, right? Like we'll chase the bigger house. We'll go to a certain neighborhood. We will try and find comfort and pleasure and wealth in abundance, thinking then it will insulate us from the realities in this life that we would prefer to avoid. Throughout history, we see God's wrath Relenting. So we see evil and wickedness all over this world. And it seems like it's winning. And we probably wonder, why isn't God doing something about this? And Revelation gives us this picture of how God's wrath is being held back by his patience. But when the cup of God's patience is full, It is filled to the brim. At that point, his wrath is going to pour out. And at that moment, the end of evil will be decisive. It says in verse 8 that in a single day, a single day, it's going to be brief, abrupt, the might of God's judgment will be exercised through plagues of death and mourning and famine and fire. So God's going to come, and he's going to put an end to evil, and it's going to be clear, and it's going to be quick, and it's going to happen. And so with this picture as the backdrop, the angel then calls out to Jesus' church, come out, my people. Come out of Babylon. God's design and desire is that we wouldn't be duped by the woman and her ways, that we wouldn't be duped by Babylon, that we wouldn't be drawn in by their many ploys that are bombarding us day after day. And so the call for us then is to run from sin and to run towards Jesus. Trusting Jesus is the call for Christians here, the call for all people. Jesus is the way that we get out of Babylon. That we escape Babylon and all of its darkness. Jesus is the one who rescues us. Now, the path out of Babylon will be fraught with trouble. It's not like there's this golden path out and we get to skate by. We understand, we should understand, life here is hard. And if it's not hard for us, it's hard for those close to us. And someday it will be hard for us, but when it's hard for those close to us, God's intent is that it's hard for us as well, that we shoulder that with them. Jesus promises that it is going to be a hard road to walk out of Babylon, and so this is part of the picture we see in this next section, picking it up in verse 9. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. And all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her, will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste, and all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out, as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste." Okay, so here John has seen a vision that contains kings and merchants and those involved in the shipping trade. The symbolic picture here is that there are people worldwide, both powerful people and regular folk people, who have prospered and accumulated wealth, great wealth. They have lived in luxury. They have enjoyed the finer things in life. They have indulged in the finer things in life, maybe even better way to say it here, they have become dependent on the finer things in life. Their dependence is seen in their response as their wealth and comfort are now removed. And repeatedly we read in these verses how they weep and wail, how they weep and mourn, They are weeping and mourning. They cry out. They wept and they mourned. The repetition here is driving home this reality. They are distraught, decimated, destroyed. The things they yearned for, that they trusted in, they are seen now that those things could not, did not hold up for them. They were unreliable. So maybe you read these verses here and you're not really geeked out about scented wood or cattle. that Those aren't your things. But we need to be able to contextualize this list of things in this, these verses. As inhabitants of a nation that has ridiculous amounts of wealth and luxury and comfort, we have got to let these verses preach to us. Center Church, we cannot slip into thinking that just because we're not a CEO, just because we're not a millionaire, that this does not speak to us, that this is not a concern for us. We swim in a sea of consumerism. It's everywhere. It's the air that we breathe. You and I are pummeled with messages every day pushing us towards comfort and towards pleasure. And the reality is, the nice things that you enjoyed yesterday are now not nice enough for you. You now need nicer, newer things than you did yesterday. So the list in Revelation 18 might not speak to us, but the list for us today is talking about cars and homes, and televisions, and wardrobes, and phones, and opportunities or activities for our kids. It's talking about a cabin, or beauty, or our body, and the list goes on and on for us. Now, these items aren't necessarily evil, but the problem is we make them evil because we place undue emphasis Upon them And Revelation 18 is telling us, "Don't, don't do that. It's not for your good. Hoping in anything other than Jesus leads to weeping and wailing. It will disappoint you. Ultimately, it will decimate us. It's saying, "Don't orient your life around stuff. Enjoy what you have. But understand that everything that you have is intended to drive you to worship Jesus. So if your stuff, whatever stuff it is, if it doesn't drive you, lead you to the worship of Jesus, what that means then is you are hoping in something that's going to lead to your mourning, to your sadness, to your destruction. Maybe you're dancing for a minute, but that dancing won't last. That dancing ultimately leads to mourning. And this is why any belief system, any theology that promises Jesus plus something else is damnable. It's cursed. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus anything will destroy us. It's never Jesus plus something else. It's just Jesus, only Jesus. It has to get us there. So there is, there is no promise of good health in this life. None whatsoever, okay? There's no promises of riches in this world. Not on this earth. And the one to come, for sure. But there is no promise attached to Jesus for these things. And Revelation 18 is screaming at us, don't buy into this. Don't buy into what our culture is trying to force-feed down our throats. Don't feast on that. To buy into any system, any belief system, where stuff or things or possessions or health is expected, Or promised from Jesus is straight from the pit of hell. And that's what Revelation 18 is telling us. It misleads us. The American dream misleads us. These are Satan's lies. These are Satan's lies. Now, none of this is to say God doesn't give good gifts. God does give good gifts. He gives them in abundance. James 1.17 says, Every good gift is from above, coming down from the Father. The key is letting God shape the priority of what is good. What are those good things to us? If someone gave you the option right now, grace or a new home. Man, that new home sounds really good, right? Because we can see it. We can touch it. We can experience it. Not that we can't experience grace, but the home is right in front of us, right? Or a new car. Grace or a new car. Grace or television. First Peter, I think it's First 1 Peter 1.13, says, set your hope fully on the grace that is to come when Jesus returns. Set your hope, not in part, fully, completely, solely, only on grace. Set your hope on grace. I saw this quote this week. I thought it captured this really well grace doesn't sell you can hardly give it away isn't that true this free gift so many people don't want it, so many of us so often, right, I'm just as guilty of this, so often we're pushing back from the table of grace, saying "Ah, I think I'll have this thing so we gotta be honest with this Center Church, we gotta ask ourselves hard questions and and not just like bounce from this. What appeals to you? What is that thing or those things that rival grace? If, if you were offered something and it would cause you to divert your eyes away from grace, to divert your hope away from grace, what is that thing? What are those things? What draws you in? What stares you in the face and and rivals grace? The call for us is to set our hope fully on grace. You guys, you've got to be honest with this. Because the whole of Revelation has been telling us Satan is really good at what he does. He's really good at getting us to think we're good. This doesn't apply to me. Oh, it does. This applies to you. God is the giver of all good gifts. Grace is the best gift. That is the thing we should go back to over and over and over all right, last four verses. Then a mighty angel took up a stone, a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you, no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you, no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. The destruction of Babylon will be final. It will be complete. All of the stuff that was treasured, you and I will be dust. It will turn into smoke. I hope you notice the phrase that I underlined in these verses, no more. The sounds that please the ears will be heard no more. The skilled workmanship that you and I marvel at day after day will be no more. There will be no more laughter. There will be no more light. There will be no more hope. Pleasure and comfort are no more. The ones who were considered great in this world are no more. As we're reading the end of Revelation 18, we should feel the air of life being sucked out. It all is coming to a grinding halt. When you think... Of the destruction of everything that you have accumulated, everything you have created, everything that you have achieved, everything that you have done in this life. When you think of its destruction, what does it make you think? What does it make you feel? Does it lead you into weeping or mourning? Does it cause you to ask, what is the point? of all of this because revelation has been really clear what the point is to all of this it's jesus jesus will conquer jesus will remain jesus will satisfy only jesus he is the great one his love is what will last his kingdom is true wealth his ways are true he is what is good. He is what we want. And this is why we relentlessly preach Jesus here because he is what we need. So we want to call ourselves out of living for anything or anyone else. We want to hold up grace because that is what we need. Grace found only in Jesus. Two points of gospel application for us here as we end. First of all, the kindness of God is unending. Now you may wonder where this comes from when reading a passage where it's talking about wrath and destruction, and and then even God's people are praising God for doing all of this. God is writing this as plain as day for us. It's really easy for us to believe in the things that offer an immediate comfort or pleasure. So the fact that God warns us of this is another example of God giving good gifts. He doesn't want us to fall prey to Satan's deception. This is why Jesus' church is seen here praising God for destroying wicked people and evil altogether because he is saving us from destruction. He's saving us from deception. God is righting all the wrongs. He is judging everything that is corrupt. He is showing his kindness by warning us what is to come. And so then we need to hear the warning. We need to hear the warning. We are far more susceptible to becoming inhabitants of Babylon than we think. Or we would even admit. What's been abundantly clear throughout Revelation is the effectiveness of Satan's deceit. We know, we know there are many things in this world that garner our affection, that stir passion within us, that get us excited. And this should stop us dead in our tracks. I am confident there are ways you are fully invested in the agenda of Babylon. Knowingly or unknowingly, myself as well, because it's so natural. It's everywhere for us. And for us to walk out of here with a casual demeanor proves the fact that Babylon has sunk its claws into us. Center Church, I love you. When I say that, I mean that. I have love for you. You will not find what you are looking for in this world. You will search after it day after day. You will exhaust yourself. You will get on that treadmill, and you will get nowhere. You will not find what you are looking for in this world. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. Not a little Jesus mixed with whatever else you like your life needs to be about Jesus. Your work, when you go to the office, if you go to the office or you're working from home, your work needs to be about Jesus. Your marriage, the way that you interact with your spouse, what you're trying to accomplish in your marriage needs to be about Jesus. Your schooling, All the homework that you have to do, your interaction with friends, your athletics, the sports that you play, these, God intends that they would be about Jesus. Not about you, not about getting your friends to look at you and be impressed with you, but about Jesus. Our parenting, our friendships, our dating, the list goes on and on. It is intended to all point back to Jesus. Can we help one another with this? Because we're all strugglers on this journey. We're all just like one another. I don't don't have it figured out. You don't have it figured out. But together, we can keep pointing one another to what we really need and ultimately what we want. Let me close with this verse, 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The things of this world, rightly understood, will stir your affection for Jesus. The things of this world, rightly understood, will stir your affection, your love for Jesus. So enjoy the good gifts of God, but give your worship to the giver, not to the gift itself.